This patient is a 60-year-old woman who actually has a family history of being BRCA2. She underwent an oophorectomy prophylactically, and right after the oophorectomy had a mammogram which showed a lesion in her left breast. She underwent a left lumpectomy and was found to have a two-centimeter invasive cancer. Sentinel lymph node was negative. This tumor was ER and PR receptor positive, and HER2 knew 2-plus positive. The patient at that time was treated with a lumpectomy, received adjuvant chemotherapy with CAF, and then underwent bilateral mastectomies without any residual disease found. At the time of her mastectomies, no other cancers. She was on adjuvant tamoxifen until 2005, when she developed a left supracavicular lymph node and left axillary lymph node. At that time, a lymph node biopsy was done, and the tumor was found to be ER negative, PR negative, and HER2 negative, both with Hercept test and fish assay. She was seeing a different oncologist at that time and was treated with, in 2005, sequentially, first with Taxotere, and it's not clear whether she had any progression of disease on Taxotere. She may even have had a response to Taxotere, but it had to be stopped because of severe eye tearing and nail changes. She ended up having shunts put in her lacrimal ducts because of the tearing and had terrible nail changes. Her disease was more or less stable, but she was switched and went on to gemcitabine and then Zolota. In January of 2006, she saw me and clearly had evidence of disease progression. She was asymptomatic, but had a supracavicular lymph node that I could feel. She also had a CT scan of the chest and abdomen, which showed a single lung metastasis and a liver metastasis. She was not rebiopsied, and I saw her and had to decide what to give her. And that's the point we wanted to get your input in. Just to pick up, she then seems to somehow have gone from ER positive to ER negative. Is that correct? Based on the PATH reports, yes. Hope, any thoughts? Well, we know that that happens. I think we don't know what, you know, there's a million percentages out there guessing how many patients become hormone receptor negative who were hormone receptor positive. So it's certainly reasonable to obtain a biopsy, I think important, and understand what has happened to ER and PR. However, and you know, maybe 15% or more over the course of treating ER positive disease where patients become resistant to hormone therapy, I think an increasing number lose ER and PR over the course of treatment. But in this patient, the curious thing is that she really presented with node-only metastatic disease and now has a single lesion in lung and liver, and that's very classic for ER-positive disease. And the important thing to remember when we do these tests is that even in the best hands, a certain percentage are false negatives. So that obtaining additional tissue or even restaining that first node would be really important. And we've had situations where it didn't make sense. And we've uncovered ER positivity, HER2 positivity. People live another three years, you know, after we've sort of exhausted therapeutic options. And how long had she been on TAM when she relapsed? Diagnosis was around 2002. So she'd been on TAM for about two and a half, three years. Okay, Mark, so let's assume we've sent her tissue to Craig Allred. It's absolutely positively ER negative. What would you be thinking about at this point? And just to maybe explore a little bit more, in terms of tumor-related symptoms, did she have any? No, she had some swelling of her left upper extremity, which I assumed was partly related. She still does, and it's not terrible, but it can always... I wasn't sure whether it was related to the nodes that had developed some of the surgery. The axillary lymph node was dissected for a biopsy, even from the breast... No, she didn't receive radiation. So it could have been from a surgery, could have been from her disease. She clearly has the supracavicular and an axillary node. And her lifestyle currently? Very active, no symptoms related to cancer. 
Working, Still. family? She doesn't work, but she travels, has family. She actually just traveled to Europe, and she's asymptomatic except for the chemotherapy we've given her. <laughs> yeah. And her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of feeling are you getting from her in terms of concerns about the tumor and concerns about toxicity? Well, I think, you know, she's more concerned about survival than toxicity. And I find that with a lot of patients. Sure. I mean, the number one thing is I have grandchildren, I'm living a normal life. Whatever you want to give me is fine. You know, as long as you can try and prolong my life without really compromising my quality, you know, I'm willing to accept it. And Mark, the obvious issue here is she's now at fourth line chemo yeah. coming up. This would be fourth line chemo, adjuvant plus three yeah, different yeah. trials. Adjuvant sure. plus three different metastatic chemos. Do we consider bevacizumab? Mark? No. We have randomized phase three data showing that bevacizumab does not work in this situation, so I think it would not be a consideration that would even come to my mind. At our institution, she would be given a menu of phase one trials to consider, first of all, since that's not the point of discussion today, I'm sure. Then in terms of quality of life, you know, the other drug that she hasn't had yet is venerelbine, and it's a very, very acceptable drug in terms of toxicity and may have some efficacy even in the salvage setting, though it's going to be limited. But that would be the obvious next choice in terms of cytotoxic therapy. I agree with Hope's point, however, that the state of affairs of steroid hormone receptor testing worldwide is really, you know, a nightmare. It makes Hercept test look like a walk in the park, arguably. And so I think you really would want to get, you know, a Craig Allred type assay done in this case to really be sure that it's truly ER negative. I think one point to make to this particular patient also is that we don't have any data right now that treating her is going to make any difference in her outcome. She has not had, you know, she was diagnosed with recurrence in 2005, so, and she's gone through three different agents. So I think that she's asymptomatic. You could actually wait to treat her for a few months and see what happens with her disease. How do you think that would sit with her, Dr. Barber? Well, you know, it's interesting. After reading the case again and thinking about her and going over a chart, I mean, one, if you're going to wait, you might as well try a, a hormone, hormone therapy. therapy. Right. <laughs> you know, once, I've made the exactly. statement as an older oncologist, no one with breast cancer should ever die without a trial of tamoxifen. Exactly. I tell that to my you know, fellows. I mean, it's, Absolutely. while you're waiting, and I'm going to think about this in the future, no reason not to try an aromatase inhibitor at some point. I mean, because you have two different... I mean, I inherited this patient from another doctor. She actually came to me with an agenda of what she wanted. And, you know, looking at now that she was originally ER positive, reminding myself, and then became ER negative, how do you know what the metastasis is? I mean, right. the spot in the liver or the spot in the lung, and there's no reason at some point, because she has slow-growing disease, not to consider trying, you know, an aromatase inhibitor. I mean, I will clearly think about that. Do you think she could have handled or would have been comfortable with just coming back in a few months without doing anything? Well, you know, at the time that she saw me, probably not, because she had just had a scan that showed progression of disease in her supracavicular fossa, a new liver metastasis, a new lung metastasis. And even though she was feeling well, she saw the handwriting on the wall that she now had visceral metastases and her prognosis was changing. A year ago, when I saw her in January of 2006, I think she's different than she is now, right? You know, so just to yeah, clarify, Hope, do you agree, venerelbine? And do you agree, no bevacizumab? I do agree. I, you know, I was one of, we were major participants in the bevacizumab and capcitabine trial. And although clearly we saw improved responses with the combination, the durability wasn't any different than capcitabine alone. So I don't think it's worth the toxicity and cost in that setting. First line obviously being very different. And we don't really know how to combine bevacizumab with other agents other than taxanes at this point either. So I wouldn't use bevacizumab. Certainly clinical trials are always very reasonable to consider 
consider. And then there are a number of efforts at trying to target the triple negative population with EGFR-targeted agents or with SARC-targeted agents. So the trials that are ongoing involve cetuximab, and then there are new trials starting up with desatinib, the drug that's used for resistant CML. What about, so, a ta- what about another taxane, either paclitaxel or nabpaclitaxel? She's only had docetaxel, correct, and really right. stopped that because of toxicity? Yes. Right, and How I think that that's another really, really good point. That So, you know, you've kind of exhausted the clinical trial. She really has triple negative disease and is symptomatic, and you've got to think of your fourth-line drug. I tend to try a different taxane first, even before moving to venerelbine, really for two reasons. One is we've had patients who've developed a lot of GI symptoms from venerelbine associated probably with GI infiltration of tumor, where they just get, you know, they have to be admitted because of ileus, et cetera. And, you know, you have to keep dose reducing them. And also because there can be a lot of vein irritation, so you have to put in central access. And so that can be a deterrent for our patients. But I have used NAB, paclitaxel in that setting on a weekly basis, particularly because most of these patients have received docetaxel every three weeks. So weekly NAB, paclitaxel, or just paclitaxel may be very effective. And we also use combinations with platinum salts in this setting as well and have had a lot of effective therapy. Can you dissect out how you decide HOPE and MARK between NAB and just regular cremophore paclitaxel, HOPE? Well, I think there's a lot of issues that we are, I think, poorly placed in academics to address, that because our reimbursement is at a different level than community practice, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself, and also we don't get very good information about reimbursement based on the drug that we choose to give. So for us, it's really, you know, it's not as if we're going to have a different profit margin based on the drug that we give, or if we do, nobody's figured it out yet. So really the issue is authorization, and I tend to use NAB, Paclitaxel, and patients specifically who have neuropathy issues, have problems with steroids, have had problems with prior taxanes, or have demonstrated resistance to a prior taxane therapy. How about just somebody who just doesn't feel like receiving pre-medication and would prefer not to, and then we prefer I use- get out of the clinic. I use nabpaclitaxel very commonly in that patient population. I have one patient who just started now. She just was completely miserable in the adjuvant setting with the steroids and the Benadryl. In particular, the Benadryl makes her dystonic and just hated the entire situation. And so is started on nabpaclitaxel. Mark, what are your thoughts about nab versus cremophore? Well, I mean, in the salvage setting, the only consideration I have is for a Braxine because in the weekly studies, I was impressed that there's a double-digit response rate even in patients who have had prior taxanes with both taxanes. So it may have some activity even in patients with prior paclitaxel, for example, in the adjuvant setting or what have you. So it would be reasonable as a salvage agent. Up front, we're not using a lot of it at UCLA unless people are steroid intolerant. And so I think cost is probably a major issue in some of those cases as well. Dr. Bobrow, can you follow up with the case? Yeah, sure. She came to me in January of this year, really, with the idea that she had progressive disease, wanted treatment, and knew about studies with Avastin and Taxol. And I chose to treat her with weekly Taxol, 90 per meter squared, and Avastin to 10 milligrams per kilogram every other week. She started on therapy on February 2nd or 3rd, and then four months later, five months later, had a repeat PET diagnostic CT scan had responded to therapy, her lung nodule had gotten small, her PET scan was dramatically better. Visually, the lung nodule got smaller, the liver metastasis got smaller, and her nodes had almost completely regressed. 
In August, you know, she was getting neuropathy from the Taxol. I was giving the Taxol on a three-week-on, one-week-off schedule, and I was giving the uh, Vastin on it every other week. In the summer, after you know, wanting to go on vacation, having more neurotoxicity from the Taxol, a CT scan was repeated. She was still responding. Lung nodule had almost regressed. No nodes were seen. The liver lesion was still present. Not really changed from the scan before. And I gave her a Taxol holiday, and she's just on Vastin right now with the idea that we're waiting till after the Jewish holidays, and now probably wait till after Thanksgiving. Always an excuse. We'll rescan her, and if there's progression of disease, put her back on Taxol or stop the Avastin. We haven't decided. Clearly, at some point, she will get a trial of some hormonal agent. How has she done on the bevacizumab? Any hypertension or any other problems? She has a little hypertension. They, I have they to came on that. with it? Uh, no, I don't remember, but she has mild hypertension now. I think more prominent than it was before. I'm very careful to treat that, and we check her urine So proteins. she's being treated for hypertension? Yes. What was the level that caused you to treat her? Just borderline. I mean, a 90 diastolic. I just, maybe nine, 140 over 90, I felt I wanted to keep 140 over 90. Mark, you 140 know. over 90, you're going to treat? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at epidemiologic studies of hypertension, you know, metastatic breast millimeter cancer? counts. Well, metastatic breast cancer, that's a different story. So I probably would not be as aggressive in a patient with advanced disease. But hypertension is an important cause of mortality, and so it merits our attention. Although oh. with bevacizumab, you see that all bets are off. So metastatic disease, we used to not pay any attention to a blood pressure of 140 over 90. But now with bevacizumab and the other anti-angiogenic agents, because, you know, the blood pressure just goes up from there in most patients. And it may be that there's some link to untreated hypertension and other toxicities. And so I think it's important in that patient population to treat blood pressure. And in fact, we do use that, you know, somewhere between 140, 150 and a diastolic of 90 to institute therapy. Any evidence to link the hypertension with bevacizumab and benefit the way there is rash, for example, with TKI? None. Well, Has it been looked it's at? Much, it's much talked about. There have been some, you know, retrospective glances at that sort of data and, you know, interesting trends suggested, but nothing definitive. So, Mark, Dr. Bobrell violated the rules and used fourth-line paclitaxel, bevacizumab. It, it seems to be working. What about the issue of... I'm con- not sure it's because of the bevacizumab, Absolutely. It might just yeah, be the paclitaxel. Be. Absolutely. Yeah. But now that she's on it, and in general, what are your thoughts about the continuation of bevacizumab after chemotherapy, the way it was done in this case? Yeah, I mean, I would do that. Obviously, if it's working in an anti-angiogenic capacity, then you would need it on board to prevent future enlargement and recruitment of neovasculature with growing metastatic tumor deposits. So I think it's very reasonable to extend it after you've reached a maximum tolerable dose from the chemotherapy cumulatively. And I think it's entirely reasonable at this point to just maintain her on single-agent bevacizumab. But again, I'm just not, it's not entirely clear that that's what caused the response in this case, and we have randomized phase three data suggesting that it's of little or no benefit. Although, we don't Although have that was with capsidabine. That was with so capsidabine. We have many, many data sets from other solid tumors showing that it's independent of the type of chemotherapy. We have plenty of data on fluoroprimidines and bevacizumab in solid tumors, and it works. So there's nothing wrong with capsidabine and bevacizumab. If you gave it first line in breast cancer, I believe you'd see a signal, an efficacy well, signal. Well, we're going to find out, hopefully, pretty we're soon with the Excalibur the, study. Hope, yes. Dr. Bobra is thinking now, maybe partly because of this discussion, maybe, about trying a hormone and 
and you've looked at the issue of endocrine therapy plus bevacizumab. Can you talk about that? Well, I think, you know, we know it's a safe combination. We don't know anything about efficacy yet. There's a plan for a whole variety of different trials looking at antiangiogenic therapy and hormone therapy, but the largest trial will be a phase three study through CLGB looking at any hormone therapy with or without bevacizumab as first-line treatment for hormone receptor-positive disease, so metastatic disease. And I think that that will give us a lot of very interesting information. You know, we've had patients, because we did this phase two trial as a feasibility study with Memorial Sloan Kettering, we have quite a number of patients who remain on therapy, but phase two trials are only as good as they go. You know, you have no idea what the comparison is. I thought there was some evidence that there's some link between angiogenesis and endocrine therapy in terms of upregulation of EGF with an ER-positive tumors. Is that the case? Well, there's some data that the ER receptor is, you know, you have changes in the expression of ER receptor with variations in angiogenesis. So that as you're blocking angiogenesis, you actually can get an upregulation of ER so that potentially you could sensitize tumors to the effects of hormone therapy. And there's some preclinical, small amounts of preclinical data that suggest that might be the case. And that's really where the whole idea of combining these agents came up. Our published data, however, on actual samples, you know, we published data on a cohort of 612 primary breast cancers where we measured in this case, HER2 and VEGF, and found a very tight correlation between HER2 expression and overexpression of VEGF. And in such patients, there's downregulation of estrogen receptor. And so, you know, the prediction would be that there would be upregulation of VEGF by HER2 and downregulation of ER in those cases. So really the opposite association but, from what you But with you treatment, so the idea is that data is very elegant, in fact, and I think has helped us a lot in trying to design clinical trials, including your own of bevacizumab and trastuzumab. But I think that the issue, which I think you could read into a little bit of the Kent Osborne data into, is that if you treat with one of those agents, depending on the clinical scenario, maybe you would upregulate the ER that had been downregulated. And that's really the question is, so are you making a tumor which might be relatively hormone resistant, based on that data, more sensitive because you're adding in the treatment? I think it's an intriguing idea. Dr. Lowe? I'd like to take a devil's advocate approach to this case because I'm a little troubled about continuing with bevacizumab and wonder what the data is for this because in this particular case, we're not even sure whether Bev is doing anything. You know, we sort of hope that it does. And it may be all from Taxol. And you're sending a message out to all of us in the community that if somebody responds to BEV and chemo, that we should, you know, if they develop toxicity from chemo and we eventually have to stop the chemo, that we should just continue BEV indefinitely. Well, that's until until the first progression. As I think Mark was alluding to, in the real-life situation, you know, you got to give people holidays off of the chemo and they get neuropathy and you have to stop. And so... Although we don't have the evidence, I don't think it's unreasonable to continue the bevacizumab as we have done with many agents, trastuzumab, hormone therapy for maintenance until first progression, but then I would stop the bevacizumab. I just think that we, you know, unless there's clearly data to show that maintenance makes a difference, I don't think that we should send a signal out to the community for everybody to be doing that. Well, I mean, in this case, I mean, I think I've made the strong point that I wouldn't have used it in the first place. So I think I can agree with you 100% on that. So you see her as a second opinion. Would you tell her to stop everything? 
No, no. If somebody's responding, I never say whatever whatever's working. I I leave them well enough alone. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's definitely my uh, mantra. So uh, I, I think that the Bevacizumab app is expensive, whether you give it with the Paclitaxel or not. So the thing is, you're going to continue her Bev and Paclitaxel until progression, right? So if you're going to drop the Paclitaxel because of neuropathy and she wants to take a trip to Europe, I think you know. Again, we want to be evidence-based, but we have to use the real-life situation and the patient's quality of life and take that into account. That having been said, if she progresses, I'm not going to continue the bevacizumab in that setting. Plus, and we I, have to think about the I biology. Think, yeah. I mean, you know, sure, it's nice to be evidence-based, but if you believe the biology is this is an anti-angiogenic factor, then you would want to continue it for as long as you want to inhibit angiogenesis. And if you want to stop inhibiting angiogenesis, then you would want to stop the drug. So, I mean, you know, it's nice to be data-driven, but you do have to have consideration of biology. And there is actually a real response rate, although low to bevacizumab. So, you know, you could always be lucky and have that one patient, which we happen to have in our clinic, a woman who had taxane, primary taxane refractory metastatic disease, who's still on bevacizumab three and a half years after entering onto a bevacizumab erlotinib trial. And, I mean, she had a huge amount of disease. It grew right through that paclitaxel, and she's still under great disease control. She now has a card which identifies herself as a clinical trial supporter. I think it's an unprecedentedly frustrating time for oncologists. You know, if you think about, Dr. Lowe, what you just said, and, you know, your considerations here, if you moved the financial thing away and just looked at the risk-benefit equation, lady's got a little hypertension, she's doing great. I think, you tell me. Dr. Bob Brown, I mean, would you compare her quality of life to life on endocrine therapy, on bevacizumab alone? On bevacizumab alone, yes, except for coming into the office to get it, to receive an infusion every other week. She has no problems. The with other thing is, you know, why don't you just cut her dose in half and that way the cost would be half as much as I work with as well. <laughs> yeah. That's not very evident. Okay, let's go on. <laughs> I hope this gets figured out. I really do. Dr. Hoffman? 